Well, I'd invite you to get your Bibles out, turn with me to James chapter 5. That's where we'll spend most of our time together this morning as we uh, close out this series on James. And I've kind of been reflecting back over uh, this particular book this week and, and just thinking about the character James who, who wrote this to us. And we know, uh, or we, we think that we know, that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who, who wrote this letter to the church um, gathered in Jerusalem. And so thinking about <clears throat> one who was somebody's brother, Jesus' brother, uh, I just got my mind going on, well, what was it like <clears throat> to grow up in the same house as a sibling who was perfect. You know, I mean, they had 20-plus years probably together growing up in the tiny village of Nazareth. So this is small-town, close-quartered living. um, And so they, they shared probably everything together, probably shared the same bedroom. They shared the, the, the same you know, games at the playground. They shared uh, learning carpentry with their father Joseph together. They went to school together. They did all, they did all these things in <clears throat> close proximity to one another. So there's probably not another person in all of Scripture that would have this picture of Jesus. So I'm thinking, what is... I'm wondering, I should say, <clears throat> what does James really think of his brother? Did he think he was a little bit eccentric, a little odd? Did he, did he idolize him, like put him up on this pedestal, like, wow, I don't know if I'll ever be able to measure up to that? Did he, um, did he think he was, to use an old-fashioned terminology, a goody-goody or a brown noser? Did he think that this guy was Mr. Perfect? I mean, Jesus always got it right. If there was an argument on the playground, Jesus had just the right words. And if somebody was angry with Jesus, Jesus just responded in love. And so James is, you know, close by watching that Jesus never got angry about anything. You know, he never had a wandering eye to the, you know, young girls out there. Um, <clears throat> Do you think James was, was jealous of Jesus? Do, do you think maybe he was resentful or maybe just a little bit bitter? I mean, I've talked to enough younger siblings. Now, I'm an oldest child in the family. I've talked to enough younger siblings to know that once in a while they just get sick and tired of feeling like they're measured up to the firstborn. Now, being the firstborn has its own set of challenges that I'm not going to unpack those with you this morning. <clears throat> we'll get to that in another, another series. Um, but James has this very close relationship to Jesus. And um, we, we read in other places in the Gospels that James and his other siblings well, they didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God. 
They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the one sent to save everybody. They just knew him as, hey, this is our older brother. This is the guy we grew up with. Their imagination couldn't take them to understand that, no, this is God's Messiah. Until, you know, the way to prove that you are the Son of God is to die, to be buried, and then to come back to life and say, hey, I've been raised from the dead. That's what convinced them. And so we know at least James bought in at that point. Wow, you're my brother. But more than that, you are my Lord and my Savior. You are Messiah. James came to that conclusion after Jesus appeared to him uh, after his resurrection. And so it's fitting, seems to me, uh, considering all of this background all of the history that James had being so close to Jesus, it's fitting that James writes a very practical book. And when he puts his pen on the page to give the church instruction, he's got a really good picture lodged in his memory to write about. You know, all of, that, all of those teachings that, that Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, you know, I watched him live it. And I can verify that everything that he taught, he actually put into practice. That's a huge testimony right there. And when you read James' writing, it, it, in off, it often mirrors Jesus' teaching almost identically. If you set the Sermon on the Mount alongside the book of James, there's so many commonalities. And so this morning as we close out, I, would you stand with me? We're going to read the last verses of chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 to 20, and we'll see what time allows. I think we'll get through most of them. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them, and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the way of error will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So I have really two, two points that I want to cover. Um, the first one is that sin and sickness isolate us from community. And the second one is that prayer 
and confession restore us to community. If you think, if you think about sickness and sin, I, um, how many of you have ever watched or found out a little one who has committed some grievous error? You know, like eating a cookie when they weren't supposed to, or colored on the wall, or, you know, something that they know they weren't supposed to do, and, and they go ahead and they do it, and then, then, then what happens? You go around the house calling out their name, looking for them, and they're nowhere to be found. There's no, there, you can't find them. They're hiding. They're off in a closet because they know they've done wrong. And mom's going to find out and watch out. You know, sin is kind of like that. We do it, and then we run off and hide in the closet so mom doesn't find us. The Bible starts out this way. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God had given them, you know, one, like one thing. Don't eat from this tree. And we know that the devil convinced them that it would be a good idea, that God didn't really know what he was talking about, and he was just trying to shelter them from something, and that if they had the fruit of this tree, that it would just be this amazing experience. And they bought into the lie of the devil, and they ate the fruit of the tree, right? And then what happened? God comes strolling through the garden, this peaceful place, calling out, where are you? Where are you? And they're hiding. The sin had isolated them from God. I think we understand the sin uh, isolating us. Um, sickness kind of happens in, in the same way. I'm not just talking about physical sickness, but, but all sorts of ways that we just don't feel ourselves. Um, yeah, I think about some of my friends over at uh, Riverside Nursing Home that we go and, and visit. And, and sometimes they're just not feeling themselves and they won't show up for the church service that we do. And I, I understand the, the physical pain and the ailment and being tired, but sometimes it's just embarrassment. I, I'm having this problem and I don't need to bother everybody else with it, so I, I'm just gonna I'm just going to stay in my room. Sin and sickness, they kind of isolate us. James says, verse 13 and 14, is anyone among you in trouble or suffering? Struggles of any kind is what he's talking about. He's not singling out one struggle, putting it or elevating it over another. Any kind of struggle. It could be relational, it could be, you know, problem at work, it could be, you know, the checkbook's not balancing, we don't have enough money to pay. Any kind of struggle that you face, James is saying, is anyone among you in trouble or suffering? And he says, is, is anyone among you sick? And the word James uses for sick here, it means, quite literally, it means one who is weary, one who is tired, one who has grown faint physically, or emotionally, or psychologically, or relationally, or spiritually. So there's this huge, broad definition of what it means to be sick. Are any of you, any among 
you sick? Any of, any of you grown weary? Do you, do you fit into any of those two definitions? I, I know I do. Sickness in this way, trouble in this way, tends to isolate us. Maybe it's shame. You don't feel like yourself. You don't want to be around people. Um, when you might need the help of a community or individuals around you, sometimes we just back off and say, you know, I just don't want to be a bother. I, I don't want to shoulder my, I don't want you to have to shoulder my burden. I can take care of this on my own, and so I'm just going to retreat and pull back until I get all my stuff put together, and, and then maybe I'll think about re-entering into community. See, we end up hiding. And what started off as one ailment leads to another kind of ailment because now we're just off alone trying to fend for ourselves. And I just think of a friend of mine who, had, who suffered an accident and uh, changed their entire outlook on life. They were no longer able to do what they once did. And so there was this huge grief set in. The way it once was, I can't, I can no longer do that because I've suffered in this way. And when you can't get by that or you don't think you can get by that, then you take steps towards isolation. And sometimes it's not immediate. Sometimes we just do a slow retreat. And we pull back from relationship and community that really is designed to be what brings us vibrancy and life and, and health. I, I like how Barbara Brown Taylor, she, she describes what I'm trying to say in this way. She says, um, while illness is no sin, plenty of sick people carry guilt about their sickness. Maybe they did not wash their hands enough. Maybe they did not get enough exercise. Maybe they ate too much, drank too much, smoked too much, thought too many of the wrong kinds of thoughts. Anyone who thinks there is no shame to illness has not been paying attention. Just ask the sick how many of their friends disappeared when they took to their beds. See, it's not just a problem that we have when we're ill, but it's also a problem that's uh, perpetuated by kind of this predominating attitude or instinctive behavior that comes out that, that sometimes we just want to distance ourselves from people who are struggling. So sickness, you know, separates us, isolates us from others. Sin does the same thing. It isolates us from God. And other people, our, our guilt and our shame keep us from fully participating in the community of Christ. We find ourselves holding back. We, we wonder if we will be found out for the hypocrites and the liars that we are. See, if you lead a double life, uh, and when, when I say leading a double life, I mean having two distinct sets of behaviors. So maybe you act at home and at church with, with one costume on, let me use that terminology, that is, you, you say the right words, 
you, you know when to nod your head and say amen in, in church. You know the right people to have a conversation with. Um, perhaps maybe you act a little bit more loving and caring. You know, you, maybe you clean up your vocabulary a little bit. And, and then, then you have another costume that you put on when you're at school or, or you're at work or, or you're out in the world with, with your, uh, you know, your work or school friends. And, and so you have these two characters, one that, that behaves one way while you're at home and at church. And, and, then, and then you go over to your work life or your school life, walking up and down the halls. And you know what? It, you know, my vocabulary doesn't really matter so much over here. And you know what? So what if I toss back a few drinks? And, and you know, once in a while we just get a little bit crazy. And you know what? That's okay because that's what we do over here. So when I say that we live, live a double life, that means that you have one set of behavior for, for one place, sphere of your life. And, and you have a, another set of behavior that, that's like totally different. I'll acknowledge Jesus over here, and yeah, he's my Lord and my Savior, and oh, yeah, I love him, and I honor him, and I want to give my life to him, and I want to do what he says. But then you come over here, and I'm like, you know, I'm in a whole different sphere. It has a different set of rules. I, you know, what I said over here doesn't really apply. So when you live a double life, you are confused. And you go through life being confused because... Sometimes the spheres start to overlap and it causes you great concern because, you know, what happens when some of your church friends run into some of your work friends and they start talking and, and then, you know, they, they know you to behave in one, uh, you know, in one way and your church friends or your family knows you to behave in another set and, and so now your, your friends over here they want you to cut up and laugh and swear and whatever you're going to do, and, and you, you're torn because, well, I can't go all in, in in either place. So you live in this constant stress of, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. So sin in this way begins to isolate us because we never go all in with, with anybody. We live in fear of these two worlds colliding and once in a while, I think, you know, like the kid and who wrote on the wall or ate a cookie or Adam and Eve who ate the fruit off the tree or whatever the sin is that you're trying to hide right now. Sometimes I think we, we build it up in our mind that if we bury it deep enough, nobody will ever find out. So in our mind, we are protecting other people from knowing about what we're really like. And I think it goes a little bit further than that. I think sometimes we try and bury sin so deep in our life and we hide it. We think that we're trying to protect God from something. You know, if, if he really knew me, he wouldn't love me. If he really knew the depths of my soul, there's no way that he would be willing to forgive me. And I, I got to tell you that there's nothing that you've done that... God hasn't already witnessed. There's no thought that you've ever had that God doesn't already know, so it's, it's a pointless effort in, in trying to bury something or, or protect God from knowing who you are. You're not protecting Him from anything. God's not sitting up in heaven thinking, man, I've got buyer's remorse. 
you know, look at, look at these, look at these people. I mean, I died on the cross for, I had, is there a return policy on that? I don't No, God knew exactly what he was getting when he died on the cross to forgive your sins. He already knows. So sickness and and sin, they they begin to isolate us from other people, and they begin to, we begin to take steps in in retreat of, in our relationship with God. And so uh, if sickness and sin isolate us, then, then James gets around and he says that there's a solution to that. He says there's an answer. And he says that prayer and confession are what begin to restore us into community. Prayer and confession are the things that we start to work at that help free us and heal us and restore us. And his counsel is not to deal with sickness and sin on our own. He says that we need to deal with these things in the middle of community with other people gathered around us. And there's health and strength that are found in the body of Christ. Now, I know it's not easy to ask for help. It's not easy to admit when we struggle. I mean, there's lots of things that I find out about after the fact. Like, oh, yeah, you know what? I was in the hospital for a couple days. Well, that would be good to know so that we can gather people and pray. James says, are any among you in trouble? Are any among you suffering? Are any of, among you sick? And he says, pray, pray. And he says, call the elders of the church around you to anoint you and to lay hands on you and, and to pray for you. I know we, we read this and, well, I don't, I'm, I don't qualify as an elder. I think what James is trying to say in the context of of his church was gather people around you who are wise, who maybe have a little more Christian experience than you. Gather people around you who uh, are exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit that are outlined uh, in Scripture. Gather them around. Allow them to anoint you with oil. Now, we could go off on a long tangent about what, what does it mean to be anointed with oil? Is it, you know, is it something that's sacramental? Is it something that's medicinal? I, I think just for the, the sake of this morning, I believe that what James is trying to say is that this is a symbolic way of setting the person who is ill apart for God's special care and attention. Jesus often would anoint people. And in Mark, I think it's chapter 6, when he sends out the 12 to to go minister to people, it says that they were casting out demons and they were anointing people with oil. And so this isn't something that James just, hey, this sounds good, I'm going to put it in here. This is something that he watched his brother and his disciples practice. And so I think it's a symbolic way of saying, I'm going to set you apart for God's special care and attention. But James' main focus here, he keeps coming back to prayer. And he emphasizes gathering together with other believers to pray for one another. And in the context of our fellowship, in the context of what we do together, there's several opportunities. Core groups is one of the huge ones. And I know you hear me talk about core groups a lot. And because I think it's a really good 
model that practices a lot of what we read about in Scripture, where we gather to fellowship, we, we gather to study, but we gather to pray for one another in smaller groups where, where we can begin to know and understand what requests and what people are going through. And we have other mechanisms for that. We have Sunday school classes that, that are very similar in function, and we have Bible studies, and, and we have, you know, mops, and, and all sorts of ways in the context of our worship and, and other ministries that, that we gather people to pray with one another. The care and prayer for one another are not just intended to happen in, in the context of, of leadership in the church, but that it's all of us that participate in this ministry together. I don't think that it's a huge surprise. I don't think it's a shock to any of us that James says we should pray. I mean, that's not, that's not new information to most people. I mean, most religions um, have some mechanism to, to speak to the divine. And so this is not a, a new thing. Um, sometimes, though, I think Christian prayer... Uh, can be short and shallow. That we just kind of rush through it. That we don't carve out time in our schedule to, to spend time being with the Lord. See, prayer is not just a requirement. It's a, it's a relationship that we've been invited into. The picture that James gives us is that, that we go to God in every facet of our life. When we're happy, when we're sad, when times are good, when times are bad, James says, pray. Pray. Richard Foster, he describes prayer in this way. He says, prayer is interactive conversation with God about what we and God are thinking and doing together. So it's not, it's not just one-sided. It's, prayer is not just us talking to God telling him what we want or what we feel. Prayer is also us listening. You know, when you communicate with someone, um, communication involves mutual dialogue, and prayer is, in fact, the exact same thing. And prayer is, prayer is powerful. James uses uh, the example of Elijah as being one who is like us but who is very effective in prayer. I'm not going to dive into the Elijah illustration, you know, just kind of a sneak peek. The next four weeks, we're going to spend uh, talking about the life of Elijah. So I'm not going to go into depth on Elijah this morning. There's a, a few more weeks for that. But what, what, I, what I do want to point out for the sake of this morning is that um, Elijah was effective in prayer because he prayed according to God's will and according to God's word. That, that there wasn't going to be rain for a period of time and then it would rain again was already something that God had said, I'm going to do this. So Elijah was not demanding of God something that wasn't already set in motion. And Elijah added his prayer along to that because he was in this relationship with God. Communication was back and forth and he knew what to pray for because he asked God about it. Prayer can be a very powerful thing. So when you pray, start 
by seeking to make your wants God's wants. Listen to God first. God, is this even an appropriate thought for me? I'm, I'm thinking this, but I don't know if it's right. Can you help me with that? So when you begin to pray, ask God to help you align what you're thinking with his thinking and conform your desires to his desires and pray according to his word and his will. Hey, prayer is the place. And I, I love this, this picture here. Prayer is the place where heaven and earth overlap. The picture of prayer is, is that we stand with one foot in heaven, with one foot in the throne room of God, and, and, and the other foot we're standing in the brokenness and the mess of this world. So when we pray, we have one foot in heaven and, and one foot in the world. One foot in the sick and the pain and the suffering and the sin. And one foot in the, in the place of perfect healing and forgiveness and grace that God offers us. That's prayer. Heaven and earth meet in the, when in the spirit someone calls on the name of the Lord. It's God breaking in to the here and now. So here's five things. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. I'll try and give them to you slow enough. But there's five things that I just wanted to ask you to consider about your prayer life. The first one is plan your prayer time. Build it into your schedule and make it a priority. So plan your prayer time. If it, there's a saying out there, if it doesn't get on the calendar, it doesn't get done. And I think in the fast-paced busy society that we live in that's absolutely 100% true. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't get done. So the first thing is plan your prayer time. The second thing is stay focused by removing distractions. And you know what distractions get you. Put your phone away. Put your computer away. But I read my Bible on my iPad. You know what? Paper copies of the Bible are really nice. And they won't give you the little Facebook notifications. But you know what distracts you. And so when, when you sit down to pray and to read and to commune with God, remove distractions from your presence so that you can fully focus on what God might have for you. The third thing is pray with other people regularly. Oh my, that's a hard one. Because, I, you know, I don't feel like I really I pray really well. I don't like speaking that kind of stuff out loud. Can I just say get over it? Is that appropriate? That didn't go too far, did it? I, I understand that. I, I have prayer envy once in a while. You know, you, you're in the presence of somebody who can really string words together well, and you're like, wow, I wish my prayer sounded like that. Prayer sounds like your heart. And God hears your heart. And if you pray regularly with other people, you'll begin to learn. You kind of, you learn prayer by not studying about it, studying it, but you, you learn prayer by practicing it, by doing it. So gather with other people on a regular basis and pray. Now the fourth thing is make prayer lists. Write stuff down. Keep a journal if you're a journaler. I'm, I'm not much for journaling. I've tried multiple times. Failed every time. 
but write down prayer requests. And write down when you learn answers, because it's amazing at how we can tie back things that God has laid on our heart, and, and then maybe a couple days or a week or a month or two, or sometimes it's a couple years, that you've, you find out that, wow, there's been some answer to this prayer. So make prayer lists. And, and number five is include praise, confession, intercession, scripture. Um, there's so many different ways to pray scripture. The Psalms is a great place to start in silence in your prayer time. And if you didn't catch all that, on the back of the core guide, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote out um, a guide for how to spend an hour in prayer. I thought it might be a helpful tool because, you know, if we say, hey, I'm going to sit down for an hour and pray, a lot of us think, well, what am I going to say after the first few minutes? And, and we just don't know how to navigate to get to 60 minutes. And, and so there's a guide on the back of your core guide that kind of walks you through what, what praying for an hour looks like. And it moves you through times of, of praise and confession and interceding on others' behalves and, and reading Scripture and, and just being silent before God. So those are five things. Um, that I think might improve your prayer life. James says pray when you have trouble, when you're suffering. But then he says, uh, are any of you happy? Are any of you cheerful is another way to say that. And, and there are times where, yeah, I'm happy. I don't, you know, I, even if I'm suffering something right now, I can find joy in that trial like James encourages us to do. And you know what? When I really think about it, I'm, I'm happy. And James says, good, when you're at that point, sing. I didn't get an amen on that. <laughs> you know, there's not too many places where there's public singing, right? I mean, church is like one of the only places where you know that when you go to church, they're going to sing out loud, and we're going to do it all together. I mean, you go to, you go to a concert, and you might add your voice. You might sing along with some of the lyrics, but you don't go to the concert thinking that I'm going to be required to sing, or I'm going to be asked or encouraged to sing with everybody else that's there. I mean, there's karaoke, but I don't think we should count that. Um, but it's church, right? When we gather together as the body of Christ, we are encouraged to join our voices together in song. And I know that that's hard for some people, especially guys. Guys, we have a little this, you know, harder exterior, and we just don't think it's like the cool thing to do, or, you know, I don't, I don't really sing on key very well, and, and that's okay. We're not here to have pitch perfect praise and worship. We're here to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And so part of me says, if I can say this again, get over it. It's okay. I, I understand that there is um, a, a certain sense that I can't let myself go in that way. But singing together, it, it's not about who is around you. It's who you're singing to and, and the words that you're singing. Because God wants you to let go. God wants you to lose yourself in his presence. And so, I think there's a couple benefits to singing. One of them is it gets theology into your soul. 
I mean, if you really focus on all of the words that, that we sang this morning, you're leaving here with theology that's built in. Well, I'm not really a theological person. But you know what? If you remember the songs that we sing, you have an abundance of theology that's written on your soul right now that you can draw on at any point in time. When that tune comes to your mind, say the words out loud. Maybe it's something that God wants to speak into your life in that moment. Many of the songs that we sing are straight out of Scripture, almost, almost word-for-word quotations from things that we will read in the Bible. These are songs that praise God. They tell you about who he is and, and how he interacts with us. So I think singing will encourage your soul. Uh, I think it's uplifting to participate in something that's much greater than myself. So when we add, when you add your voice to the hundreds of other voices in this room, it's a beautiful thing. You can get lost in the music. You can get lost in God. And I think that's what it's all about. Praying and singing are things that add to this picture of community that, that James has, has painted for us. A worshiping and fellowshipping and caring group of people, this, these are parts of that, praying and singing together. Verse 15, he says that we, are, that we are made well through the prayers that are offered in faith. Sometimes, sometimes this means physical healing, like literal physical healing, Sometimes it's emotional healing or relational healing. James is saying that when, when he's talking about our made well, the word that's made well, we think about um, a tangible physical healing at this point. But really the, what James is saying is that uh, we are made well or we are saved. That's the word there. We are saved through prayers that are offered in faith. And, and, and if you kind of look deeper into the meaning of, of this Greek word for saved here, it's that we are rescued, get this, we are rescued from the danger of destruction. We are rescued from the danger of destruction because the community has gathered around us to pray. Taking it a little bit further, in that same verse it says the Lord will raise us to life. He will lift our spirits is the language that James uses there. And so figuratively, you could say that, that, that the Lord will raise you from obscurity. The Lord will lift you up out of the isolation that you feel because you are sick or in trouble or have buried sin. It's not a promise of physical healing all the time. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's a different kind of healing. Sometimes it's just being restored into community so that you know that you don't have to walk through life alone. So practicing faith happens in community, not off in isolation on our own. Then he gets to this... um, Verse 16, he gets to this notion of confession. He says, confess to each other. Confession is sharing our deepest weaknesses, 
our failures and our sin with God and with other trusted people. And our sin, we've noted, as it creates a barrier between us and between uh, people and between us and, and God, and it prevents us from fully entering into God's presence. And so we confess our sins so that we may enter into God's grace and mercy and experience His ready forgiveness and healing. That's what confession, that's the point of confession. I know this is hard stuff. We don't necessarily want to air our dirty laundry in front of a bunch of people. Because we might fear what other people would think of us or say about us. We, we lose a little bit of control once we let it out. And I think that scares us from even doing it in the first place. We don't want to be judged. So we don't want to let our guard down so that, you know, maybe that shiny exterior that we're trying to promote, we don't want to tarnish that, and so we bury stuff. James says, no, confess to each other. Conviction that leads to confession should always be sweet for the believer in Christ because it's an invitation to surrender ourselves over to what God is doing in our hearts. Confession to each other makes us more vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable with each other, what that does is when we're vulnerable, our guard is totally down when we're vulnerable. And when our guard is down, that means other stuff can get in, right? The love of God, the healing, forgiveness, and grace of God can penetrate our heart when we let our guard down. James goes on in verse 16. It says, we should pray for each other so that we may be healed. So he's saying that confession, in some ways, leads to healing. Confessing brings freedom, like a weight has been lifted from us. So we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to live in fear that our worlds are going to collide. We don't, we don't have to hide or, or worry about being found out anymore. And so, in some ways, James is making a connection between sin and sickness. And I want to be really careful here because Jesus and James and, and all the other biblical authors, they don't make a straight line connection between uh, sin and sickness. If you remember in John 9, Jesus and the disciples are walking and the disciples, they walk by this blind man and the disciples' question is, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, who sinned? Was it his parents or him that made him blind? And Jesus said, neither. So Jesus doesn't believe that there's always a straight-line connection between somebody's sin and, and somebody's sickness. But sometimes there is a connection. Sometimes there is. I mean, Jesus, Mark chapter 2, he's teaching. Um, four friends bring their paralyzed friend, and they dig a hole in the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. Remember that story? And Jesus, before he heals the guy, he says, your sins are forgiven. So something Jesus noticed in this guy was that there was some issue in his life that was preventing him from being healed, that Jesus had to deal with this first before he would heal the guy. And then David talks about this over in, in uh, Psalm uh, 32, uh, and David says things like um, that his strength was gone, that he was just weary. He was wasting away because he had unconfessed sin in his life, that he couldn't sleep, that he was totally exhausted. All of these things, you know, this is what David was reporting, that 
I feel like this physically, and it's because I have unconfessed sin in my life. But when I confessed my sin, things were different. I was able to experience the healing of the Lord in my life. So when we carry guilt around and we try to cover over our tracks or, or live a, a lie, it, it starts to pile stress. Have you ever feel stress on you and it begins to affect you physically? And science tells us this. Science tells us that, that when we have done something wrong, it ignites this battle in our mind between telling and sharing or burying and hiding. And so keeping sins hidden is stressful for us. And so when you lead a double life, it floods your brain with these chemicals and these stress hormones that, that just have negative results on, on your health. So we've got to be clear, not all sickness is sin-related. Not all stress is sin-related, but some of it is. And James says that confession is what leads to healing in our life. It's a spiritual reality. It restores our connection to God, and it begins a process of healing our relationships with other people. But it also has health benefits. Confessing Take another thing home. Confessing has health benefits. And science tells us, there's a study from the University of Texas uh, a couple decades ago, I think now, um, that when people confessed wrongdoing, there were tangible... Now, this is a secular study. This is not a spiritual study at all. This is a secular study. So this is science telling us that confessing wrongdoing, there were tangible health benefits, both physically and mentally. That the you would experience better moods, a stronger immune system, a less psychological distress, that you would have improved sleep patterns and better relationships. So that's, that's science backing what the Bible has been telling us for a couple thousand years. Science tells you not to lead a double life. It confuses your brain. Science says to bring your sin out into the open, bring it out into the light. Science says confession will lead to better health and relationships. Basically, science is saying the Bible is right. Amen? I love that. There's great healing and freedom when we are open and honest. So I'd encourage you to read through Psalm 32 and just listen for evidence of your own existence in it. Think about sin that might be holding you prisoner right now. Things that you have just tamped down and buried. Let the Holy Spirit do that work in your life. Maybe it's an addiction to something or flirting that's getting out of control or cheating at work or gossiping or road rage or lying or whatever it is. Confess it to God. Talk to maybe a circle of your friends about it. And when you're reading Psalm 32, don't, don't focus on all the negative. You can focus in on a little bit on verse 5 that says, I acknowledged my sin to you and, and did not cover it up. I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord and you forgave me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. See, God will forgive you. He already has. He's just waiting for you to step into that forgiveness by openly acknowledging and confessing it. So let me encourage you to let it out. You can't, you can't beat it on your own. You, you just can't. If, if, you can, if you think you can win this thing on your own, 
you're, you're just being foolish. If you keep your current path, you're, you're going to end up destroying your marriage or your career or you're going to come to some other ruin and something's going to happen before you'll actually listen. So confess it. Let it out. If you don't know how, come and talk. We can talk through it together because stepping out into the light is the only way that you're ever going to be able to kill darkness. James ends with a couple, a couple verses that, that talk about wandering believers, and I think it's his way of bringing us full circle around and saying that once in a while we're going to wander, all of us. And when we wander, we have, we have fostered a community around us that, of trusted individuals and friends and loved ones who, when, when we wander, they're going to come after us, and they're going to hook us, and they're going to bring us back. And when we do that for each other, it says we save people from death. It's not pestering people. It's loving them back to Christ. It's not acknowledging that what they're doing is fine and okay. It's sometimes we have that mirror that is held up in front of us that says, you know what? This is you right now. Knock it off. Come back to Jesus. Confess it. Stop burying it. Be restored to health.